Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This is Early Stuart, England, episode 102, I think I should know them. We left off last time at Christmas 1641, the maddest Christmas that Robert Slingsby ever saw. In the span of three days, Charles had appointed, then dismissed, Thomas Lunsford as Lieutenant of the Tower of London. Lunsford was a diehard loyalist to the Crown, once convicted of attempted murder, and one of the most aggressive of the Cavaliers who now camped outside the Palace of Whitehall. Many in London saw Lunsford's brief tenure as Lieutenant of the Tower as evidence that Charles was planning a coup, evidence that the recently disbanded soldiers loitering in the streets of London were part of a private army the king was building, and, most of all, evidence that the moderates in the king's circle, who had been building a faction since the summer, were now being shunted aside by far more radical advisers. For their part, the king and his allies thought they perceived a junto coup in the making, Junto attempts to seize control of the military through legislation had been stymied by the House of Lords. So as December dragged on, Pym and his gang were turning to the streets. The London government, under the Conservative mayor Richard Gurney, had so far blocked attempts by London crowds to march on Westminster. But after the Common Council elections of the 21st of December, in which Junto-friendly candidates won out, and the Lunsford fiasco, which convinced many in London that Charles was willing to use dangerous methods, the landscape changed. It was no longer clear that Gurney could command the loyalty of the London government, especially the trained bands who had been policing the streets. Both sides expected the other to use violence to get their way, and so both sides mobilized their irregular forces in the streets. Those who supported the king had many reasons for organizing into armed groups. Honor motivated many, especially those with military experience. Fighting for the crown formed an important part of their identity, and they saw the king under threat. Others were motivated by a kind of romanticism, especially those young men who had not yet experienced warfare firsthand. The long peace of the 1630s had deprived many young men of the opportunity to fight, and while some had signed up for the Scottish Wars, the experience failed to live up to their imaginations. There had been months and months of training and waiting around, and only a tiny minority actually saw combat. A fight to preserve the very existence of England promised real adventure. Politics, of course, mattered too. For many, the junto represented a dangerous new direction in English politics. If the king were neutered, as some in Parliament seemed to want, then anarchy and disorder would follow. Even more prevalent were fears of religious radicalism. A victory for the junto would mean a Scottish anarchical church. Throughout December, conventicles, where men and women gathered to pray outside the organized church, were attacked by roving bands of cavaliers. In late December, a group of 500 young lawyers in training from the inns at court arrived at Whitehall, offering their services as guards for the king. 
They likely embodied this heady mixture of conservative political ideology and devotion to a personal code of honor. Meanwhile, the crowds who supported the junto were similarly well-motivated. The apprentices of London form the backbone of these crowds, but the image of them as a mob of the lower orders is misleading. First of all, many of the marches on Westminster were organized by members of Parliament and their allies in the respectable classes of London. Many apprentices attested to the fact that they were encouraged to march, or even armed, by their employers, who told them that Parliament was calling on them for its defense. Secondly, it's difficult to get an accurate cross-section of the crowds that took to the streets in December 1641 and January 1642. Those loyal to the crown denounced them as a rabble of the lower orders, but this was an attempt to discredit the crowd. Many witnesses reported the surprising wealth and respectability of the protesters that gathered at Westminster to intimidate Parliament. Not to mention the fact that many apprentices were themselves the son of respectable merchants and gentlemen farmers. Class warfare in the streets of London, this was not. The pro-junto crowds were, like those supporting the king, motivated by fear and anxiety. Fear that an Irish army would descend on the city any day now, or that the unofficial cavalier army gathering at Whitehall would execute a coup. In the days after Christmas, 1641, those fears and anxieties focused on the bishops in the House of Lords. They had clearly become the junto's main obstacle, preventing Parliament from passing legislation that would limit the king's control over the military. For the pro-junto partisans, this was a parliamentary deadlock that could only be broken through popular pressure. The lords had to be forced into seeing that England's survival depended on pushing the bishops out of Parliament, once and for all. For the pro-Charles partisans, the danger lay in that popular pressure campaign succeeding. The great political decisions of the day could not be settled by intimidation. In the name of order and justice, they had to protect the lords and allow them to come to a rational, lawful decision about the bishops. On the 27th of December, after a two-day hiatus over Christmas, Parliament resumed. As we saw last episode, Charles had tried to calm things down by dismissing Thomas Lunsford from the Tower of London, but the damage had already been done. The night before, several bishops' residences across London had been attacked, a not-too-subtle warning for them to stay away from Parliament. The morning of the 27th, a large crowd gathered at Westminster to present a petition against bishops. Popular petitions were a common form of communication with Parliament, so this wasn't necessarily provocative. What was provocative was the fact that some in the crowd were armed, and that they went beyond merely presenting a petition. The mass of bodies deliberately blocked the entrance to Parliament. Bishops, and those lords known to support them, struggled to push their way through this hostile crowd. In the face of this opposition, the bishops organized. Their leader was John Williams, the Archbishop of York. Williams was a holdover from James's Big Tent Church, and had never warmed to William Laud's anti-Calvinist one. In fact, his opposition to Laud had landed him in the Tower of London until the Long Parliament secured his release. He had been one of the few bishops to support the impeachment of both Laud and Thomas Wentworth, aligning himself with the Junto in the first half of 1641. But Williams had been alienated by the radical political and religious turn the Junto took that summer. This should not be a surprise. He was a bishop, after all, and had no reason to want his political privileges as a bishop taken from him. 
Therefore, Williams joined the moderate King's faction that developed over the summer and autumn. As a respected voice from within the church, Williams had value. A value that was recognized in November with his elevation to Archbishop of York, the second highest office in the church after the imprisoned Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud. Williams was the face of Charles's rebranding campaign as a moderate king. No longer would the church be dominated by hardline anti-Calvinists, but neither would it be dominated by hardline Presbyterians. That kind of strict orthodoxy had led to the mess they were in now. Williams, who was never short of political ambition, dreamed of presiding over a renewed Calvinist consensus. He would be the new George Abbott, and Charles the new James. In order to achieve that, Williams had to overcome the anti-bishop mob. So, on that 27th of December, Williams led the bishops through the crowd, blocking entry to Westminster. His coach was singled out as a target, with one protester reaching through the door and tearing at his robes. Williams flailed at the man, and the carriage continued to edge its way through. However, of the forty-odd bishops eligible to sit in the Lords, only twelve joined Williams in braving the crowds that day. Those lords and bishops who did manage to elbow their way in spent the day inside the Westminster complex, listening to the crowd's chants of no bishops. Popular pressure was paying dividends. But as we've seen, the junto no longer had a monopoly on popular intimidation. While the crowds outside shouted for the removal of bishops from the House of Lords, and maybe even the church as a whole, a smaller group of royalist partisans assembled at Westminster. They were led by the now-notorious Thomas Lunsford. Ostensibly, they were at Westminster to petition for army back pay owed to the soldiers who had disbanded over the summer. But it's likely that Charles and his advisors thought that it was a good idea to ensure that some loyal and combat-trained men were in the vicinity. When Lunsford's men came across some of the more violent protesters, a scuffle ensued. The parliamentary guard, which Charles had beefed up with former soldiers, drew their swords and stepped in. Apprentices and former soldiers fought each other with swords, clubs, and whatever else they had to hand. The result was somewhat inconclusive, though several observers noted that the superior numbers of the apprentices gave them the edge. The next day, the 28th, everyone prepared to do it all over again. The lords still had decisions to make on whether to exclude bishops from their house, and on whether to restrict the king's control of the military. Another day of protests might either intimidate the lords, or keep any royalist-inclined voters away from Westminster. Throughout the day, London saw a spirited battle for control of the streets. A crowd of apprentices moved to attack the home of the Dean of Westminster, located just outside the Abbey, and within sight of Parliament. But a group of cavaliers who had gathered in the abbey burst out and ran them off. Another group of apprentices, likely marching towards Parliament, was attacked and dispersed outside Whitehall by the cavaliers camped out on the palace grounds. The apprentices of the city saw this as an unprovoked attack and threatened to strike in solidarity. But rather than punish the offenders, Charles turned the band of soldiers at Whitehall into a formal unit, officially naming them his personal guard. But on the crucial battlefield of Westminster, the Junto partisans held firm. Once again, they blocked the entrance to Parliament, and this time only two bishops got in. The result was an end to the gridlock that had paralyzed Parliament for the past two months. Without the bishops and many of the royalist nobles, the lords finally started passing the legislation sent to them by the commons. 
On that day, the Lords made progress on a bill authorizing Parliament, rather than the King, to recruit a new army for Ireland, a bill removing the bishops from the House of Lords, and the beginnings of a legal attack on George Digby, the King's most vocal ally in Parliament. Defending himself, Digby argued that the extraordinary scenes outside Westminster tainted the day's debates. He put forward a motion that Parliament immediately suspend all activity until they were free from the intimidation of the crowd. Digby's motion was defeated, but only by a tiny margin of four votes. Even under the influence of the protesters, the junto could only inspire the trust of just over half of a depleted house. As the day ended, Charles realized that he was losing the battle. He demanded Mayor Gurney take control of the situation. The London militia now had the authority to, in the king's words, kill and slay such of them as shall persist in their tumults and seditious ways and disorders. Gurney could only feebly respond that he was no longer sure of the city militia's loyalty. The Earl of Warwick escalated the situation still further. He called for the immediate mobilization of an army for Ireland. But this army would not assemble in Bristol or Chester, where it could quickly sail for Ireland. Warwick demanded that it assemble in London. He claimed to be able to immediately raise 600 men, with more gathering throughout the next few days. The subtext of Warwick's plan was obvious to everyone. He called this force an Irish army, but it was clearly intended to solve the military crisis in London. On that, at least, Warwick and Charles agreed. As dangerous as the ongoing Irish rebellion was, it now took a back seat to events in London. With Charles and the Junto now openly organizing rival military units in the city, the moderate Royalist party, that had looked so close to success in the fall, made one last bid for a political solution to the crisis. On the night of the 28th, George Digby met with John Williams. Their goal was to rework Digby's petition for a suspension of Parliament that had been narrowly defeated a few hours earlier. Digby and Williams were convinced that a large number of MPs and lords were alarmed at the rising influence of the crowd. Maintaining the social order was supposed to be the number one priority for the landowning political elite. Surely the men of Parliament could see that they should be far more afraid of popular revolt than an overbearing king. They decided to fall back on the core issue that had underpinned the recent success of moderate royalism, the status quo in the church. Williams and Digby produced a petition that tied the attempt to exclude the bishops from the lords to a larger campaign of destroying the established Church of England. Today, bishops would be stripped of their political power. Tomorrow, England would descend into radical sectarianism and violence. More specifically, the petition argued that the deliberations that had been held on the 28th should be null and void. The bishops, members of Parliament in good standing, had been prevented from sitting, Therefore, the day's session had not been a free parliament. Any legislation or resolutions it passed were therefore illegitimate. However, the time for political solutions had passed. Rather than pausing the escalation, the petition presented to Parliament by Williams and eleven other bishops brought both sides closer to a confrontation. John Pym expertly spun the petition as a backdoor attempt to undo all of Parliament's good works. If Parliament accepted the petition's logic, that legislation could be retroactively invalidated, then everything the long Parliament had achieved over the past 14 months might be erased in the blink of an eye. The arrest of William Laud and the dismantling of the anti-Calvinist church, the Triennial Act, all the constitutional concessions Charles had accepted in the summer, 
all of them could be nullified by cooked-up accusations of undue popular pressure. It's a testament to how vulnerable those constitutional achievements seemed that Pym immediately won over many of the non-aligned men in the Commons. The new petition was rejected by a larger margin than Digby's petition the day before, and both houses immediately began work on impeachment charges against the twelve bishops who had signed it. By the next day, it was clear that the moderate royalist attempt to win over Parliament had failed. What followed would be a test of will and military power between Charles and a junto-controlled Parliament. Both sides felt that the struggle was a matter of self-preservation. Charles worried that the junto now had the opportunity to raise a purely parliamentary army. Meanwhile, the junto men feared that Charles was now unrestrained by any sense of constitutional decorum. In Parliament, John Pym did his best to turn fear of a royalist coup into gains for the junto. On the 30th of December, he informed the House of Commons that a coup was imminent. The doors to the lobby were locked, and Parliament made plans to protect itself. The unstable peace in London survived for another 24 hours, though. The next day, Pym pushed a resolution through the Commons calling for the King to name the Earl of Essex as the commander of the London militia. Only by formally handing over control of the military could Charles prove he had no intention of moving against Parliament. Charles, of course, refused, but the demand was intended for a public audience rather than the king. Pym and the junto needed to ensure that it was Charles, not them, who were seen to be instigating violence. The king's refusal to let the popular and experienced Essex take control of the situation and calm the streets could be spun as evidence that Charles intended to do something nefarious with the London militia. That night, more crowds clashed with the king's soldiers just outside the Palace of Whitehall. By now, the Cavaliers had become a kind of living proof of a royalist coup in the offing. Why else did the king need such a large body of personal guards in the city? So long as they were present, Parliament would not be safe. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. On the 3rd of January, Pym shifted the attention of the commons to this personal army the king was building. That morning, he reported that several hundred desperate and loose persons were known to be loitering around Whitehall. This posed a national security risk that had to be neutralized immediately. It was, perhaps, the first step towards Parliament approving the suppression of the Cavaliers by force. But before the Junto could complete this move, Parliament was interrupted. Charles beat them to the punch with his own bombshell that he had been organizing over the past few days. Ever since his return to London, Charles had been advised by two factions within his inner circle. Up until recently, he had prioritized the moderates, who had been so successful in building a royalist party in Parliament since the summer. These are the guys we've met already. Edward Nicholas, George Digby, and Edward Hyde, prominent among them. But as we've seen, their attempt at scoring points in Parliament by rebranding Charles as a moderate king capable of delivering order and stability had failed. The bishop's petition of the 29th of December had been their last attempt to rally independence in the common but it had only succeeded in alienating them. 
Charles now began to pay more attention to the hardliners around him. They had always warned that this slow-burn parliamentary rebellion could not be negotiated with. It had to be crushed by whatever means necessary. Prominent among these hardliners was the Earl of Roxborough. Roxborough was the guy who had taken the lead in planning the incident up at Edinburgh that fall. A bloody-minded Scottish noble of a bygone era, Roxborough had urged the king to let him cut the throats of Argyll and Hamilton rather than just arresting them. He now advised similarly direct methods in dealing with these English traitors. In Roxborough's mind, kings had the authority to summarily deal with insubordinate subjects. Also urging Charles to make a defiant stand was his wife, Henrietta Maria. Throughout the 1630s, Henrietta Maria and her allies, whether it was the Earl of Holland or various French ambassadors, had always been frustrated by the Queen's inability to influence royal policy. Charles had obvious affection for his wife, but that rarely seemed to translate into political influence. However, since the Scottish crisis, and especially since the fall of Wentworth, Charles turned to Henrietta Maria as an advisor. She had always taken a dim view of negotiating with the junto leaders, favoring instead a strategy of marshalling royal strength for a well-timed, decisive blow. It was Henrietta Maria that had pushed Charles to make tactical concessions in the summer of 1641, confident that when he had rebuilt his strength, he could renege on them. She now advised her husband that there would be no better opportunity to reclaim his authority. Any day now, Parliament would move against the military forces Charles had at his disposal. He had to make his own preemptive move while he had the chance. The junto could summon large crowds of apprentices, true, but Charles had his cavaliers, army-trained and battle-hardened, some of them anyway. But Henrietta Maria had an even more powerful argument than this pragmatic one. She saw herself, with good reason, as the junto's next target. As always, her Catholicism worked against her, and the fact that she was foreign didn't help either. She was an obvious culprit in many of John Pym's Catholic conspiracy theories. Of course, in some cases, Pym didn't need to work too hard to connect the dots. Daniel O'Neill had helped organize the Irish Rebellion from within the Queen's household, and the army plot to save Wentworth had also been orchestrated from within her inner circle. She pled ignorance to the plotting, but many English subjects were not willing to give Henrietta Maria the benefit of the doubt. Finally, the Queen was a well-known opponent of parliamentary compromise, aside from tactical, temporary concessions offered in bad faith. There were plenty of signs that Parliament was building towards an attack on the Queen. The Commons was debating legislation that would banish the Catholics in her household and her ability to practice her faith in private royal chapels both privileges granted to her by the French Marriage Treaty. Both Charles and Henrietta Maria envisioned a repeat of the Wentworth saga. Parliament would condemn the Queen and force the King to abandon her to her fate. But Henrietta Maria was not Wentworth. Under no circumstances would Charles put his own interests ahead of those of his family. Just as protecting his wife seemed to have pushed Charles to abandon Wentworth at the last moment, Charles once again acted to protect his family. In typical Charles fashion, even though he set his mind on the hard-line option, he continued to act as if he was following both options at once. As we've seen in the past, and will see in the future, Charles liked to keep his options open. But this strategy caused endless confusion among his own advisors. Charles began by sending out signals that he was considering the old Bedford Compromise of offering key administration positions in exchange for junto cooperation. 
On the 1st of January, he had a private audience with John Pym. The king offered the office of Chancellor of the Exchequer, the post Pym had been aiming for back in the spring. But Pym had come too far now to back down, and no doubt had zero trust in the king. Two hours later, Charles offered the job to another leading Hutto member, John Culpepper. Perhaps hoping he could craft a compromise that would avoid a civil war, or perhaps just tempted by political advancement, Culpepper accepted. But these conciliatory gestures were just laying the groundwork for a provocative move on the junto. Charles wanted to divide his enemies before striking. The same day Charles offered the Chancellor of the Exchequer job to Pym, the king decided to lay charges against Pym and five others in Parliament. John Hampton, of the ship money trial fame, Denzel Holes, one of the men who had held the speaker down in his chair in 1629, William Strode, a West Country friend of John Eliot's who had also taken part in the 1629 fiasco, Arthur Hasselrig, a junto ally from Leicestershire, and Edward Montague, an aristocrat who had been working with the Providence Island crew from the beginning, and who was the son of the Earl of Manchester, the moderate leader in the Privy Council during the 1620s. Charles planned on accusing these men of subverting the laws of England and pitting the king's subjects against him, not to mention encouraging foreign Scottish rebels to invade England. If this sounds familiar, it should. The language of the charges was identical to that of the charges Parliament brought against Thomas Wentworth, except this time the treason was calling on the Scots, not the Irish. Charles likely derived some pleasure from the fact that these junto men would be charged with treason under the precedent they themselves had set for Wentworth. But while this had a certain poetic justice to it, Charles faced a legal problem. Wentworth had been impeached by the traditional procedure. The House of Commons brought charges, and the Lords sat as judges. Even the Bill of Attainder, which ultimately determined Wentworth's guilt, passed through Parliament in the normal fashion. The Bill was presented in the Commons, passed, then approved in the Lords, and finally given royal assent by Charles. What Charles proposed now was an innovation, an impeachment initiated from outside of Parliament by the Crown itself. What the King's goal was, politically speaking, has been debated by historians, and indeed it wasn't entirely clear to Charles's advisers at the time. It seems that Digby may have suggested the charges as a delaying tactic. Figuring out how to respond would occupy Parliament for several days, hopefully delaying the organization of a parliamentary army. But the hardliners like Roxborough, and especially Henrietta Maria, saw this as an opportunity to make a definitive stand, to separate the traitors from the loyalists in Parliament. On the 3rd of January, as the House of Commons reconvened after their lunchtime break, contemplating Pym's warning of troops gathering at Whitehall, they were interrupted by Edward Herbert the Attorney General. Herbert announced the charges against the five members of the Commons and Montague and the Lords. However, rather than discussing an impeachment trial, the Commons and Lords both agreed that this was a provocative assault on their privileges, perhaps even the existence of Parliament itself. The attempt to arrest members of Parliament fit neatly into Pym's narrative of an impending coup. Both houses spent the rest of the afternoon talking about the need for a parliamentary guard for self-defense. Seeing the run of debate going against the crown, Digby slipped out and travelled to Whitehall to update the king. When night came, Parliament was still discussing the necessity of military protection. They were interrupted once again by the sergeant-at-arms, who had received orders from the king. If Parliament refused to arrest the six men, as was customary in impeachment proceedings, then he was authorised to do so by the king. 
But the Commons ignored the sergeant-at-arms and debated whether such royal demands were yet another violation of parliamentary privilege. That night, Charles made the final decision to arrest the members himself. He had boxed himself into a corner. Having made the accusations and demanded the arrests, he could not tolerate Parliament's refusal without admitting he no longer controlled the kingdom's government. Parliament's staunch refusal to act also strengthened Henrietta Maria's hardline arguments. Nothing more could be gained by bargaining with this Parliament. It didn't help that the Commons passed more resolutions against the Queen that day, voting to evict her religious advisers from the kingdom, another violation of the marriage treaty with France. Charles and Henrietta Maria spent the night in consultation, and both agreed that Parliament was more likely to demand the Queen's arrest than it was to detain any of the men Charles had accused. Parliament would have to be cowed by a royal show of force the next day. Before going to bed, Charles sent word to Mayor Gurney. The trained bands of London were to focus on maintaining order in the city the next day, not defend the parliamentary complex at Westminster, as they had been doing recently. Charles had other, more reliable troops in mind for that job. London awoke on the 4th of January, expecting a confrontation. Overnight, Charles had reinforced the tower, a crucial asset in maintaining military control over the city. But oddly enough, the entire morning went by without any action. The king's personal army of cavaliers remained camped outside Whitehall. Messengers rushed back and forth between Whitehall and Parliament, trying to discover what the king planned. Until quite late in the day, it seems that even Charles didn't know what his plans were. Should he drag things out, as Digby advised, or force a confrontation, as his queen demanded? It was not until three in the afternoon that Whitehall erupted in a sudden rush of activity. Some reports had Charles pushed into action by an angry Henrietta Maria, who demanded he defend her against parliamentary attacks. Others had the king outraged by Parliament denouncing his accusations against the six Parliament men earlier that day. Whatever the reason, Charles assembled around 500 men from his Cavalier Palace Guard. Accompanied by the Earl of Roxborough, Charles rode in a carriage ahead of the soldiers as they made their way to Parliament. As Whitehall had been under close watch all day, word of the king's departure reached Parliament immediately. The House of Commons decided to stand resolute, except for the accused members who quickly hid in the chambers of King's Bench, just off Westminster Hall. By the time Charles arrived, the Commons were prepared. Eighty armed men joined the king as far as the lobby outside the Commons. Although they did not enter the chamber with him, the lobby doors stayed open, so the soldiers were visible to everyone inside. At their head stood the Earl of Roxborough, the man who had advised Charles to cut the throats of Argyle and Hamilton the second they were in custody. Intimidation was the name of the game. Charles continued the display of royal power by starting into an imperious speech, ordering the commons to give up the accused. But partway through his prepared statement, Charles hesitated. Scanning the rows of sullen faces in the commons, he realized that none of the men he had come to arrest were there. For the first time suspecting that maybe his gamble would not pay off, Charles muttered, I don't see any of them, and I think I should know them. Charles was unsure of how to proceed. He certainly had the men, and with Roxborough a willing servant, to use violence to compel the commons into cooperation. But the commons men were armed with swords themselves, and Charles likely saw a bloody melee in the Westminster Palace as a no-win scenario. Realizing that there would be no triumphant arrests, Charles walked out to shouts of, Privilege! Privilege! 
In the end, the king's clumsy attempt to enforce his will was the worst of both worlds. Pym and the other accused members remained free, and all of Charles's talk of royal power had been exposed as empty bluster. He had achieved nothing. On the other hand, Charles had all but proven his tyrannical intentions. For all anyone knew, the accused members were to have been hauled off for a summary execution. For days, if not weeks, both the king and the junto had been maintaining a delicate balance. Both sides were preparing for a conflict, but neither side wanted to alienate public opinion by being too aggressive. But now, Charles had given Pym, Essex, and Warwick a gift. The king was the one to blink first, bringing armed men into Parliament and attempting to seize control. Parliament was the aggrieved party, fully justified in defending itself. But just because the king's coup had failed on the floor of the House of Commons, that did not mean he wouldn't try again. The next morning, Parliament turned into an armed camp. Crowds gathered at Westminster to act as a massive human shield, protecting Parliament. Scouts positioned themselves between Whitehall and Westminster to warn of any approach. Over the course of the day, however, Parliament decided that the sprawling complex at Westminster was not a defensible position, and voted to reconvene at Guildhall, the home of London's municipal government. There, they would be hosted by the newly elected, junto-friendly, Common Council. In preparation, Parliament voted to pass control of the city's militia to the Common Council. As we've seen, the loyalty of the trained bands had been moving towards the junto anyway. This formality merely consolidated parliamentary control. For his part, Charles didn't immediately realize how powerful the alliance between Parliament and the London government was. After all, just over a month ago, the bigwigs of the city had welcomed him with a grand procession. The mayor was a hardcore loyalist. Surely Charles had the home field advantage at Guildhall. But the common council elections had radically shifted London politics. The mayor and the aldermen no longer held a monopoly on power. On the 6th of January, Charles appeared at Guildhall and once again demanded his prisoners. Once again, he was drowned out by shouts of privilege from the Common Council. Angered, Charles retired to Whitehall and drafted a proclamation demanding the city cooperate with the arrests. But the Lord Keeper refused to put the proclamation under the royal seal, and Mayor Gurney, bowing to popular pressure, refused to read it out before the civic government. By nightfall, it was clear to even Charles that he had lost the battle for London support. Many assumed that this meant the royal gloves would come off. With the public already alienated, Charles had nothing to lose by throwing the full weight of his military power on the city. After sundown, word went out across London to expect cavalier reprisals that night. Barricades were thrown up, and some estimates had 40,000 Londoners arming themselves in preparation for a fight. But no fight came. As it happened, the fears of Catholic conspirators and cavalier armies were overblown. Charles had deployed his full military power in the attempt to arrest the members on the 4th, and had failed. He simply didn't have the military strength to unseat Parliament. On the 10th, Charles and his family left London for the safety of Hampton Court. The king, likely accurately, suspected that Parliament's next move would be to arrest Henrietta Maria, who was, again likely accurately, blamed for the botched arrest attempts. The next time Charles saw London, it would be for his trial and execution. Meanwhile, Parliament returned to Westminster in a triumphant procession through the streets of London. 
After months of slow-burn tension and the last few weeks of rival armed camps, the city was finally safe from the threat of a violent coup. But behind the celebrations was uncertainty. What came next? The French ambassador thought he knew. If this were France, he mused, the town would have been alight and awash with blood within 24 hours. But this was not France. England had its own political and constitutional traditions, notably the collaborative ideals of the mixed monarchy, where crown, commons, and nobility worked in harmony. For now, civil war remained unimaginable for the vast majority of England's population. But a functioning mixed monarchy seemed as impossible as ever. How could the system work when the king and parliament were politically, and even geographically, alienated from one another? Next time, we'll join the people of England in trying to piece together the consequences of Parliament's victory over Charles. Both sides had a lot of work to do if they wanted to shape the new political order. Parliament had to define a new role for itself, one that could constitutionally justify its supremacy over the king. And even more difficult, one that the naturally conservative population of the kingdom would buy into. Charles, on the other hand, had a more straightforward task. He didn't need to rewrite the constitution to justify his royal authority. The king was the king. Even the uneducated masses could understand that. What Charles needed was an army. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.